I'm Ava Aswani. I'm Matt Ruiz. And welcome to the You Belong in AI podcast presented by UCLA ACMAI Outreach. Today, we will be interviewing Shanasa Okolo. Shanasa is a third-year PhD student in computer science at Cornell University. Her work includes developing machine learning models that advances diagnosis and treatment of infectious diseases and other AI-enabled healthcare models. Much of her work has a profound impact on low-resource communities all over the world. On top of her extensive work in the AI community, she's a founder of the Diaspora Group, which advises and invests in tech startups serving the African diaspora. For fun, she composes songs, updates college system, a blog and community focused on succeeding in graduate school, travels the world, and updates her t- Twitter at Chinaza. Okay, so um, let's start with some education and background questions just to get to know more about you. So what were you like in high school and what were you interested in both academically and non-academically? Sure, so I would definitely say um, I was, you know, a bit nerdy in high school, somewhat reserved. Um, I was definitely somewhat social as well. I was very involved um, in different, I would say campus, not campus, but high school clubs and and groups. And also um, I was fortunate to um, be able to do my last two years at a community college, but I also like you know so did sports. I did dance team and also ran track. So I would say I was very well rounded. And so in terms of um, my academic interests, I was definitely more interested on um, I would say um, in healthcare related things, just because you know um, I definitely had a lot of pressure growing up to be a doctor. Um, you know it's very common for immigrant families to kind of push um, their kids towards that the area, and so that's something that kind of, even though I was pushed into it, I still, you know, had a natural interest for it. And then additionally, um, I was very intrigued um, by the show Bones when I was growing up. So I always loved anthropology, archaeology, um, you know, those kinds of, of fields, and especially um, like things just that have to do with, you know, ancient um, history. And so uh, fortunately, like I was able to kind of, you know, pursue classes um, and just like, you know, um, activities that were able to satisfy um, those interests. And then also um, non-academically, I kind of mentioned, mentioned this before, um, but I was, you know, very um, into uh, athletics. So I ran track um, all four years um, in high school. And also I did dance team for my first uh, year in high school. It's really cool to see that you're super, super well-versed in everything. That's, that's really Thank great you. to be really well-rounded in high school. So what led you to take college courses as a high school student? And how did you like it? And how did it prepare you for college? Right, yeah, so fortunately, um, the Kansas City Public School District, uh, they had this program called Early College Academy. And so I think for my year, maybe we were like the third or fourth class or so. And so honestly, I just felt like it was a good opportunity to, you know, to get more college credits um, for college, even though I didn't eventually like end up transferring them. But, you know, obviously like, you know, get more, um, I would say instance of classes, even though I did go to, you know, one of the best high schools um, in Missouri, it was just an opportunity to get off campus and learn something new. Um, and so I would say I really love the courses just because one, I was able to take, you know, things that weren't offered um, in my high school, like, you know, medical terminology and anatomy and physiology. And also I just, I was able to interact, you know, with people much older than me. Um, you know, it was a community college that I took uh, these courses at. And so, you know, people, there's a, a wide range. So I would say like there are people from like 18 years old to, you know, 50 years old. And so, you know, just being able to, you know, learn more um, about, you know, have a non-traditional high school experience in that aspect, you know, um, taught me a lot. And then I would say for uh, preparing for college, definitely I would say learning more about, you know, I guess the college rigor um, of courses um, was also super helpful for me to get adjusted to that. And also I would say um, in terms of adjust, adjustment, um, I was able to, maybe have it be a bit smoother just because um, in in taking community college courses, I had a lot more free time. And so I didn't have to go to uh, school, you know, at 7 a.m. anymore. Like my earliest class probably started at like nine. So then I was able to wake up and make like eight or so and, you know, have that bit of freedom. And then like, you know, I wasn't stuck on campus all day. I could leave early um, to go to work um, after school. And so it was a lot more freedom and flexibility for me. Yeah, I think a lot of college students resonate with that coming from high school. It's much more flexible. So so what led you to study computer science at Pomona then for your undergraduate degree? And specifically, were you were you confident at the time going into CS? And if so, what makes you finally decide to go for it when you were applying to college? Yeah, definitely. So 
I didn't even really know that much about computer science um, when I was in high school. I didn't take any courses. I took stuff like when I was little, um, you know, we took like, you know, typing courses in school and, you know, the, just regular computer courses just to learn, you know, more about just like, you know, Microsoft Word and you know, all those kind of systems. Um, but in terms of actually, you know, programming and coding and just like, you know, computer science in general, um, honestly, it just came to me because one, it was very popular um, at the time and, you know, it's, it still is growing, especially for undergraduate education. And so when I came into Pomona, I was set on being a science technology society major. Um, and so um, at that time, um, I thought it would be great to like blend my interests, you know, in, you know, these fields with being able to, you know, pursue just a wide range of courses and, you know, different areas. Um, and so from that, um, I would say I wasn't really able to like pursue the major just because the classes were a bit spread out. Um, and so at the time I knew I was going to minor um, in both like anthropology and CS, but I think it just worked out for me that, you know, I would just rather, I would be best, um, better off, um, majoring in computer science. And so I was able to, you know, take a lot of different courses like sociology um, and anthropology. And honestly, just because, you know, being at um, a liberal arts college like Pomona, I'm affording me the ability to do that. So I was probably going to take these courses anyway. I wasn't that super confident just because I, you know, never took a programming course. I never like, you know, programmed a, a line of code at all in my life before. And so actually um, I did some things on like Code Academy, maybe like the semester before I actually took my first CS course. Um, and yeah, I would say it was an interesting experience. I definitely struggled um, a bit in my uh, first courses, but I just, I grew to love it. That's great. Um, it's, yeah, it's good that you have a little flexibility. I, I actually do know about Pomona since I'm kind of from around that area, but yeah, it's a great school with a lot of flexibility for your major. So how was it growing up in like a more immigrant household in your area? And did you ever feel underrepresented in academic settings throughout high school? So being an immigrant was very interesting, um, you know, definitely balancing, you know, life at home versus life um, outside of home. Um, we, my siblings and I, we were very um, involved in, I would say, like extracurricular activities. And we uh, participated in, I guess, they call it extended day and also um, the Boys and Girls Club. And so um, growing up in Kansas City, um, in the areas that we did, we actually were exposed to people who were like, you know, um, Black or like African-American. And so I actually didn't really grow up um, around um, a lot of other immigrants. And I didn't actually have any, um, I would say, like immigrant, um, a lot of immigrant friends or, you know, first-gen friends like me um, until I went to college. And so that um, experience, you know, kind of gave me, yeah, just a lot of insight um, um, into, you know, Black American culture. And then also, you know, I do identify with that as somewhat because I was born in the U.S. And so um, I never felt underrepresented in high school, fortunately, just because I actually did went to, my school is considered to be a, a historically Black high school. Um, it's called uh, Lincoln College Prep. And it was the first, well, was, I don't know if it's the first, but it was, um, you know, the, the high school that was um, open to Black students because, you know, there weren't any other high schools that were open at that time. And it's actually, um, you know, as you can tell by the name, named after um, President Abraham Lincoln. And so it was just, the school has a lot of history. It's founded in 1865, if I remember. And it's very, it's, I, I found out recently that it's actually older than like both Pomona and Cornell. So yeah, that's something that is super interesting. Like it yeah, gives me a lot of pride. Yeah, that, that's really awesome, actually. I I think that's a really good opportunity. So um, I guess then transitioning to your college, um, then how was the how was the representation there um, in terms of both like immigrant representation and then also um, black representation? Yeah, so for me, I would say in terms of immigrant representation, it's kind of hard to tell, but I know a lot of people that I hung out with were either like, you know, first gen or, or maybe like came to the States when they were younger. I um, mean, so, and, and honestly, excuse me, honestly, they were like from a lot of different countries. And so um, I was able to get, a, I would say a wider a breadth, of, breadth of experience, you know, with people um, from different kinds of immigrant backgrounds. And honestly, when I was in college, I did tend to stick to, um, I would say my primary friend group, I was definitely black. Um, all of us were either like, you know, black American or um, like Haitian American or Nigerian American. Um, so um, I was, I felt like insulated in this community a little bit. And also, fortunately, um, the five C's or the Claremont Colleges, you can like go through, like go to different campuses. I was able to like take courses and like eat meals and all that stuff. And so I had like a wider community than just at Pomona. And I would say um, out of all the colleges, I think Pomona is the most diverse. Um, so honestly, even though the black representation was definitely a bit low, um, there was just a strong community of black students across the, co the colleges that I didn't really feel 
um, super underrepresented, just I would say in general, but definitely um, in the computer science department, um, I remember that I was the only black woman to graduate um, in my year. And I think I was either the third or the fourth black woman to graduate uh, from it with a computer science degree or from the computer science department um, in general. And so definitely, um, you know, trying to navigate that was a bit hard because I didn't have really anyone like directly, um, I would say ahead of me to kind of consult with. I did, um, I was able to talk to some black women, but they had graduated by the time, you know, I was like really um, like getting into computer science and all that or, you know, um, yeah. And so that was definitely a bit tough, but fortunately I would say like the underrepresented students in our department um, were very, you know, great informative community. So we were able to, you know, um, pursue projects together and work on class assignments and also just, you know, go to conferences together. And also I would say the department did a great job. Um, I want to shout out my, one of my favorite professors, uh, Professor Chen. Um, she was super awesome and uh, helping like to do, organize, I would say like the diversity conferences. And so I'm um, helping to organize like Grace Hopper and um, more specifically like Tapia, um, which, you know, is very popular um, for diverse students um, in CS um, to attend. It's a conference, so yeah. Well, you know, that's great to hear that you had some great role models to look up to. So um, I'll have Matt take over and ask you some more questions about your PhD life. Yeah, it sounds like you had a great experience at the Claremont Colleges, like you said. But after you graduated, what made you decide to, you know, pursue a graduate degree in computer science and eventually like move across the country to Cornell? Yeah, so I would say it was definitely a bit of a journey. So when I came into you know, undergrad obviously didn't know that I was going to end up with a computer science degree. Uh, but I think along the way, like I always knew that I wanted to go to graduate school, um, either on like, you know, computation, computational biology or like bioinformatics. And so that was always, you know, on the tip of my mind. And so fortunately, um, I was able to get more experience um, and, you know, the things that you need to do to prepare for graduate school, like research um, through um, these, uh, you know, research programs that I did in the summers um, called RU programs. And so uh, our research experience for undergraduates and they're sponsored by the NSF. And so they, you know, they allow you to get research experience um, at a university that's, that's probably not like, you know, your home institution. And then also like you get mentoring um, from graduate students and also faculty members and kind of learn about, you know, the processes of applying to and like, you know, staying in graduate school. And so um, those programs are super helpful um, for me wanting to pursue, to pursue a degree and then also um, I would say just learning more about like, you know, how computer science could advance healthcare um, and, you know, not, you know, kind of diverting from my dream of actually becoming a medical doctor. I felt that I would still be able to kind of pursue, you know, some of these goals by, you know, um, going to graduate school and conducting research um, in these areas. Yeah, sounds amazing. Then I guess just like a small follow-up question, but how difficult, if any difficulties, was it moving from, you know, California to New York given like the weather differences and like, how was it adjusting to Ithaca in general? Yeah, so I would say it was definitely a big adjustment. And honestly, I did feel a bit spoiled, you know, being in California, Southern California uh, for four years. But honestly, fortunately, you know, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, we get all four seasons and, you know, sometimes the winters can be somewhat harsh. So I was somewhat prepared, but, you know, definitely not all the way prepared, you know, cause the, the winters in Ithaca are definitely no joke, um, especially, you know, this year. And so, Honest, I definitely miss California a lot, but I'm getting used to Ithaca, even though it's, I'm still getting used to Ithaca, um, even in my third year. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I know it could be tough, like the weather transition for a lot of people, but glad to hear mm -hmm. that you're doing well with it. I know you mentioned that you've been involved with like a lot of different communities, you know, from your, when you were in high school and even your undergraduate, they've all been very different, mm -hmm. but how does it compare to the community of PhD students that are at Cornell currently? Honestly, I would say just be, grad school is so different from undergrad. You know, everybody is kind of decentralized. Um, and also I'm just at being at a larger institution even more so. So I would say in grad school can definitely be a bit harder uh, to form communities uh, or community if you're not really intentional about it. And so um, I would say my graduate program or, you know, the computer science department and also the information science department, I would say we've done a really good job um, in forming community. So, you know, um, pre-COVID, of course, uh, we had, you know, social hours, we had, you know, different seminars every weekend, you know, people would go out um, after social hours to kind of go to bars and like hang out. And so I think that's something that also attracted me to the, the department in the first place. And so it's really great to have that. And so for me, I've also been, 
intentional informing community outside of the department, especially, you know, with, I would say, affinity groups like, you know, the Black Graduate and Professional Student Organization. Um, I served on the e-board uh, for a year or so and also just have been in, engaged in activities and um, also like hang out with a couple people from that group. And then also I was involved in the Graduate Society of Women Engineers, which is also a great community um, to hang out with and just, you know, um, be connected with people um, outside of the department. And I've actually engaged in like a couple of undergraduate groups as well, um, specifically that those kind of focus more um, on maybe like professional development and also like doing work, um, you know, uh, volunteer work on the African continent or uh, toward, targeted towards, you know, black community. So um, that's something I've engaged in as well. Yeah, it sounds great the way you've been able to like get yourself involved. I know it could be difficult mm -hmm. for incoming students. So yeah, another like question, similar. Um, I know you touched upon it a little bit, but how has PhD life changed with the, with the pandemic, you know, with academics or like your research or even socially? Yeah, so fortunately, you know, being um, a computer science PhD student, you can honestly like do your work from anywhere as long as you have, you know, a computer and a working internet connection. So that I've been fortunate to not really have any delays um, in some of my work, but honestly, um, there is a Part of my research that has kind of suffered a bit and so it's kind of an unconventional for computer scientists to do so but actually um, engage in field work and more I would say like qualitative work um, just because one aspect of my research kind of focuses on you know understanding how people understand and perceive AI and so I actually did a virtual um, field study in India uh, last summer and I was actually supposed to be there in Bangalore but obviously you know um, the complications you know from COVID you know prevented that so um, that's one aspect of my research that's suffered a little bit, but we were still able to get stuff done and you know um, get those study written up and analyzed. And fortunately, the paper was accepted um, at CHI, yeah, last year. And so I'm very happy about that. But um, I definitely miss, um, in terms of like in-person PhD life, being in my office. Uh, you know, Cornell's fortunate to have you know a lot of great donors. Um, our building is named after Bill and Melinda Gates. You know, they they donated a lot of money to create a nice building. And so like the office is super nice. I have a view over like the, the baseball field and I can see like the sunsets and all that stuff. Ithaca has like really beautiful sunsets. And so miss being in my office and, you know, like, um, you know, walking by and like seeing friends in the hallway, and, you know, catching up. So definitely that's uh, one thing I miss a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's difficult to uh, not be able to like see friends in the hallways when it comes to like day to day, but um, also congratulations on your research paper. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, for getting you. accepted. Then I guess on the topic of research, um, I know you've, you've engaged in many research projects at Cornell, Pomona, and some other universities, but which research project really stands out to you and like in terms of like enjoyment and uh, just fulfillment in general? So yeah, all of them have like a special place to me for me, um, but I would definitely say the research I did at Columbia University, um, it was after my sophomore year um, in undergrad. And so it was very interesting because I didn't get the chance to work directly with rhesus monkeys, but my like the research lab I was in, it was a neuroscience lab. We were actually situated at Columbia Medical School or no, sorry, the Medical Center. And so um, it was very interesting because I was able to do some, learn more about like eye tracking and also uh, work with hardware um, to, you know, develop different tasks to kind of, I would say, estimate and learn about per human perception. And so I think the coolest part was that I was actually able to like go into the lab um, where the, obviously the postdoc um, I was working with was, you know, directly working with the monkey, uh, the monkeys and like fitting, fitting their heads with, um, I would say like the tracking devices. And so that was like super interesting. And also just, you know, um, being in New York is very interesting. And it was great to be there for a summer and, and you know, be in a cohort with other, um, you know, students who were, you know, actively um, engaged in like different kinds, different areas of medical research. And I think I was the only computer science student there. So um, definitely uh, stood out a bit, but I had a really great um, experience there. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and anything to do in New York and also like with the research that you talked about sounds really good. Okay, we're going to be moving on to our next section. It's a new section we're adding. Um, it's mm -hmm. called 10 Epochs. It's kind of like a rapid fire not trivia, but question about you. Yeah. I put in quotes serious questions, but they're meant to be lighthearted. But yeah. feel free to pass in on any of these. But yeah, I'll start with the first one. What's your favorite programming language? Definitely MATLAB. It's very unconventional, but I it was one of the first languages I really, you know, did a lot of work in. And so I just really find it easy uh, to conceptualize other better than like other languages like Java and Python. So 
Yeah, MATLAB has a space in my heart. Cool, cool. The infamous question, Emacs or Vim or neither? Honestly, I really hate Vim, but like it was the first, I guess, I don't know what to call it, but it was. I had to use it a lot in undergrad. So I had to learn how to use it, so. All right, sounds good, sounds good. Then across all your computer science courses that you've taken, which one has been your favorite? I would definitely say uh, a, it was a human computer interaction course I took during my senior year at Pomona. Um, I actually ended up doing research uh, with a professor who taught this course, um, Alexandra uh, Papuzaki. And so um, I really enjoyed, you know, uh, learning more about, you know, I would say like, it's not non-traditional areas of computer science, but, you know, just things that are not, not super technical. And so this, um, you know, taking this course and, you know, being engaged with research with the professor, you know, helped shape a lot of my research interests today. So yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Then what's your favorite hobby outside of work? I would say pre-COVID uh, traveling, but now um, I would say just going on social media. Then TensorFlow or PyTorch? Definitely TensorFlow. Um, I have a couple lab mates who are trying to push me towards PyTorch because it's much more efficient, but yeah, TensorFlow is just easier for me to use at the moment, but yeah. Yeah, stick to your roots. Then <laughs> per person in the AI community that you admire the most. So I would say it's like a, a set of people, but I definitely want to um, highlight uh, Tim Gebru and Reddy Abebe. And so I've been fortunate to meet and work with both. And so definitely um, have been inspired by them for years. And uh, fortunately, you know, uh, Reddy, you know, did graduate from Cornell recently. And she's been a mentor to me, like, um, since I've, you know, been at Cornell and also like after uh, she's graduated. So yeah, very fortunate to know both of them and, you know, have them um, in my life. Yeah, it's amazing. Then... Which one do you think is cooler, reinforcement learning or generative modeling? I would definitely say generative modeling, uh, just because, you know, there are a lot of cool things I see being done with it, especially in terms of like the art space and the art world. And so, yeah, I'm really, I really enjoy applications, you know, that are kind of not traditional. So, yeah. Yeah, same here. Then California and New York. Uh, definitely California, no question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then favorite AI or ML conference to attend? So I haven't really been to that many in person. I guess COVID kind of helped me attend more, but um, I've been to NeurIPS a lot. And honestly, that was due to, you know, being able to go to the Black and AI workshop um, there. And so I'm um, in such a great community and, you know, being able to see other Black researchers from around the world um, has inspired me a lot. And just, they've been in really great places or somewhat great, um, you know, it's always in December, but um, yeah, so I would say definitely NeurIPS. And lastly, Jupyter Notebooks or Google Collabs? Ooh, yeah, this is kind of hard, actually. I would say Google Collabs is a bit more easier to use. And also, I think a bit more functional than uh, Jupyter. You don't have to have, you know, your own, like, GPU setup to run. So Google Collab kind of democratizes access to machine learning, which um, I like a lot. Cool, cool. Yeah, that's the end of this segment. Thank you for answering those questions. But um, we'll be yeah, moving no on to the next segment, which um, Alva will be taking over. That was, a, that was a lot of fun to hear, actually. I really loved that segment. <laughs> so now we're going to go into more professional involvement and publications. So uh, first question, many students are always keen on landing internships with big tech companies. So how did you land your research internship with Microsoft? And what was that process like? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, I can be uh, pretty transparent with this. And so Microsoft Research, they actually have a program geared at getting undergraduates engaged in research, which, which is awesome. And so when I was an undergrad, I actually never did any kind of like software engineer internships at all. I actually had an offer at Intel one summer, but just chose to do research at um, Carnegie Mellon instead. And so, um, you know, being able to pursue research um, in, you know, an industry setting was very appealing to me. And so um, with this program geared toward towards undergraduates, you just apply like normal. Um, you have to get like recommendation letters. And so from there you, um, you know, interview and then you get like placed um, at an office. And so it just happened that, I guess like with my skill set and background, like in, you know, doing research in computational biology and computational neuroscience, um, the a lab at, you know, Microsoft Research in Cambridge, England was super interested in my work. And it was actually the only lab I ended up interviewing with. And so obviously, you know, um, I, I wanted the chance, you know, travel a bit more and get out of the U.S., you know, before coming back, um, you know, for graduate school. So I'm just decided uh, to take it and go from there. So for me, it was pretty straightforward application, interview, placement. So, yeah. 
And then, so what was it like being a Microsoft intern? And can you give like a little bit of a rundown for your schedule? Like what was the intern culture like? You know, any funny stories from that experience? Yeah, definitely. So just to start, I, I want to say that, especially in terms of like the research um, area of Microsoft or, um, yeah, it's a bit, it's very different from, you know, the typical like tech um, industry role that you would have as like a software engineer, um, you know, intern. And so uh, you do, I feel like the perks, uh, honestly, you don't really get that much, um, you know, compared to the, the other traditional roles. Um, but it was so fun, you know, just to, you know, be outside the U.S. And so in terms of free stuff, um, you know, we get like hoodies, backpacks, uh, water bottles, um, I think like occasionally like snacks and stuff. Um, and yeah, that was great. And then also um, in terms of the intern culture, I, I feel like it was kind of hard to kind of tell who was interns and stuff just because at their research level, there tends to be a lot of PhD interns. And so like they can kind of, you know, cross for, you know, like full-time um, employees. But fortunately, um, I was able to find like, you know, like people who are actually like just about to in, enter their PhD programs like me. Um, so we were able to, you know, um, you know, eat um, lunch together and also like plan trips and stuff, um, I guess like outside the UK. And also out the uh, Microsoft Research Cambridge, they do a really good job in, you know, trying to plan events for interns. And so I remember like on my, one of my, I guess my second to last day um, of my internship, we were able to go to like a go-kart like racing track, which was really fun. And um, also do some other activities like throughout the summer as well. And um, in terms of my daily schedule, I would say that it really depended, but it was pretty straightforward. So I would get in the office maybe around like nine to 10 or so and then just kind of review what I needed to do for the day. Um, and then uh, let's see, get started on my project. Um, and then probably like throughout the day, um, have you know different meetings uh, with my research supervisor and then also like his supervisor who was like the lead uh, for the group I was in. Um, also the group I was in is called Biological Computation. And so uh, it was very interesting because I think at the time it was the only lab at Microsoft that had a wet lab um, um, in terms of like bio biology and like chemistry and all that stuff. And so it was very, it was super interesting. And um, I was able to do like, uh, I would say a lot of, I was able to do a work that I probably wouldn't have been able to do at like another company. So um, it was very cool. And so going back to my schedule from there, like, you know, I had different meetings with people. And then also at the end of the day, I would usually like go down to the gym and work out and then just like go home. And so I honestly think like the coolest thing about um, being in there was that we got bikes because I guess in Cambridge, you know, it's very, um, academic town and you know it's, I think it's very common for people to ride bikes so this is my first time like riding a bike full-time so like Microsoft they pay for you know all the interns to get a bike rental for like the time they were there um, and so yeah um, that was one thing I also really enjoyed um, and then like being in, UK, in the UK honestly I mean it wasn't really super super different um, to me like honestly you know there is a different culture but I think I guess the, the biggest thing I had to get adjusted to was you know driving or like walking or biking um, down the, the left side of the, the street instead of, you know, the opposite way. But I got used to that pretty quickly. And yeah, so it wasn't yeah anything like super uh, weird or so, but yeah, it was nice. That's great to hear. And then, so when you were working at like a big tech company or interning there, mm -hmm. what, what did you like about it? And what did you dislike about it? Cool. So I would definitely say just the amount of like, I guess the different kinds of people that you can find um, at Microsoft Research, especially in, um, you know, at Cambridge, it's, there's so much diversity in terms of like what they're actually doing. And so if I recall correctly, um, at um, MSR Cambridge, um, there, I think each floor is kind of like dedicated to a different group. Um, and then like within the floors, you know, they have different wings and stuff. So, um, you know, you had people working on, you know, biological computation on my floor, and then, you know, just like, you know, systems engineering or, um, you know, programming languages or, you know, healthcare um, applications and so I'm um, being able to like you know see and meet like with, with other people to kind of learn about what they're doing you know was very interesting also and honestly you know like being at a big tech company the pay is great and so that was something that kind of differed a lot you know from the traditional like research internships I did at um, universities and undergrad so that's something I really um, enjoyed as well and then in terms of like what I did it's like um, honestly it's really hard to say like I think I just enjoy being there and you know like having a great time so I, I couldn't really think of anything I, I dislike at the moment. That's awesome. That's good that you got like a lot of the benefits of that big tech company. So tell us about your work with uh, more low resource diagnostic health monitoring and why do you think that health monitoring in Africa is so important to you? 
Great. Yeah. So this is, uh, I've been working on a couple of projects for a while, but I haven't been able, you know, to work directly um, on the continent yet, but my goal is to, you know, work there um, in the long term. And so my work right now is trying to optimize methods uh, to improve um, how different respiratory functions or symptoms are diagnosed or, and they were detected um, by computer vision systems. And so I would say this is very important just because um, in a lot of regions, you know, throughout the global south and also in, in sub-Saharan Africa specifically, you know, the, um, the healthcare systems, you know, aren't really, I would say, well-built. And so, you know, they rely on a lot of, I would say, informal healthcare, you know, that's done by community health workers, like NGOs. And so not having, and also there's a lack of specialized doctors, you know, and so um, using technology can kind of augment, you know, this lack of doctors and also just like healthcare in general um, to help improve, you know, the detection, diagnosis, and also like treatment um, of diseases. And so that's something that's super important to me. And then also, um, you know, as uh, being someone who, um, I consider myself to be Nigerian, even though I was born in America. And, I, and when I was growing up, I heard a lot um, about, you know, the different healthcare issues that my parents faced and also like that, you know, their siblings, you know, faced um, like, and also like family members who were back home in Nigeria faced and continue to face. And so that's something that, you know, like became very kind of um, I'll say important to me and stuck with me um, as I, you know, have gone throughout my research journey. So I wanted to do something that would directly have an impact um, in this space. It's awesome. Um, and it's obviously very useful. And it's great that you're doing this kind of stuff. So what are some of the difficulties? You talked a lot about, um, you know, the getting access to that AI, but are there any difficulties of deploying this AI in the low resource areas? Yeah, definitely. So the first thing that comes to mind is just infrastructure. Um, and even, you know, without thinking about, I would say, technological capacity. Um, you know, there are things like, you know, uh, roads and stuff that are not well built out. There are things, you know, like um, hospitals and clinics that are not uh, built out. And then also just in terms of, um, I would say, uh, technical uh, infrastructure, like, you know, um, Wi-Fi or, you know, um, let me say just like internet. Uh, yeah, it, and also just like telecommunications infrastructure um, is a, can be lacking in some areas. And so if you're building devices, um, you know, that kind of rely on the cloud, it may not be possible um, to, to deploy them in these kinds of regions. And then also thinking about um, if you're working with, you know, um, you're working with different kinds of devices. And so since electricity may be a problem, you know, people cannot rely um, on, you know, big equipment that, you know, needs to be plugged in and like, you know, on 24 seven. And so a lot of um, machine learning models um, at the moment are kind of uh, developed and you know, trained on large GPUs. And so that's not really possible just because you know, they take up a lot of electricity and yeah, it's just not feasible to you know, move them from these you know, um, large like expensive you know, computers with you know, all this kind of uh, fancy hardware you know, to small um, you know, phones. That's a, a difficulty I see. I see, okay, yeah. Those, those are some great points, definitely. And um, so are there any other, I guess, like AI regulation barriers that you might have to get to in deploying in some of the areas that you're interested in? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so um, in terms of regulation, I think uh, I've done a little bit of research um, into looking at this, but obviously um, in most of Africa or like even throughout the global south, there isn't regulation uh, for AI or even, you know, technologies that, you know, are focused on e-health or like, um, you know, e-medicine. And so it can kind of be hard to determine what you can actually do uh, with AI um, and, you know, how this will be kind of uh, governed or regulated. And so I would say that there's a lot of room uh, for this to be improved. I know that, you know, there are people at the UN and other, you know, organizations that are working closely on developing, you know, general AI regulations. But um, at the moment, I don't see anything specific um, towards these regions, except for um, in larger countries like Kenya, South Africa, and Nigeria. But yeah, it's, again, it's like, you know, very scarce. I see, I see. Okay, cool. So then um, what are, um, I know that privacy and security is something that you're also interested in. So what are some barriers in the privacy and security realm in deploying any AI-based healthcare models? Yeah, definitely. So first off, obviously, you know, um, there are like technological needs that need to be considered. So, you know, you have to um, you know, have, I would say, databases that are secure and, you know, that, you know, obviously can store, you know, these data, uh, this kind of data. Yeah, I think that's very important. And then also going back to regulation, you know, um, you know, HIPAA is a big one in the U.S. 
I'm not familiar with like what's it, what it's called in like the EU, EU and the UK, um, but they also have like their different, you know, um, privacy regulations when it comes to healthcare data. So obviously like following that is the biggest thing um, as well. And also, and also one thing that, you know, some people don't consider um, in terms of privacy and security, people don't really think about these issues the same, you know, in different regions of the world. So uh, for example, kind of referencing the study um, that I did last summer virtually in India, is that, you know, it's very common, you know, for people when they go to um, hospital visits is that, you know, they're, you know, in a crowded area, um, you know, they, they may be actually like have multiple people um, in a like a doctor visit room. Um, and so, you know, you may not necessarily like, you know, have the, enough privacy um, when you're like, you know, having visits with doctors. Um, so something else that uh, we also found from the study, like for in, in regards to like privacy and security, sometimes, you know, the healthcare workers who manage these, these devices, they actually share them, you know, with other family members. And so, you know, sometimes like, you know, we had stories of, you know, data getting deleted by a child who was playing on a phone or also just like, you know, um, these community health workers having to like rely on their husbands to transmit information for them. So you just really have to consider, um, I would say like the regional and also cultural differences when it comes to both like privacy um, and security. Interesting, okay. Yeah, I, that's definitely something I, I never thought about was the cultural uh, respects of that, but this, that's a great point. I guess the next question that we wanna go to is um, regarding your research that you did with AI-based facial recognition. Um, so AI-based facial recognition can often be used by authorities to find criminals and use it in other legal settings too. So what are you, what do you think are some issues with the modern AI facial recognition? Honestly, there are a lot of issues. And for me, I think it's really just the intent of deploying these models in the first place. And so we see that a lot of, you know, these tools are being used, you know, for policing, uh, for, for surveillance, um, and also, I guess, just for you know, things that really don't make any sense to me, like emotion recognition or kind of like ethnicity recognition, which is super hard to do, even, you know, from just like being a human trying to do these things. And so um, I think those are the, the main issues that I see. And obviously, um, you know, a lot of great work has been done um, in this area. And I would say it's definitely spearheaded by, you know, Joy Bull and Winnie and uh, Timna Gebru and also uh, Deb Raji, um, you know, who, you know, they obviously, you know, spearheaded the great study, uh, Gender Shades. And so we've been able to see a lot more, I would say like outcry against these technologies. But for me, I would say it's just, you know, the intent um, of deploying them in the first place. I see, yeah, def definitely. And then, so why do you think that it's important for data sets that we use to train AI facial recognition models to be more diverse and accurate? I think the most important part comes is, is not, you know, using AI to exacerbate existing racial inequalities or inequity. And so we see that, you know, in policing, you know, black and brown people, especially black people have, um, you know, been disproportionately affected um, by, you know, issues that come, you know, in that, that come uh, with policing, um, you know, in their communities, you know, around the U.S. and even outside of the U.S. as well. And so ensuring that, you know, these recognition models um, have incorporate and use data sets that are both diverse and accurate can kind of, you know, help. Um, and reducing this and also just ensuring that, you know, people aren't wrongly arrested, you know, based on, you know, uh, mugshots that incorrectly match them, which has happened a couple of times actually, um, even within the past year. So you and I feel like if this doesn't happen, then we're gonna to continue to see like AI kind of evolve on its own to be, you know, evolve into, you know, a monster that can be worse than like the, the existing, like, you know, systems that, you know, have already, you know, hurt people uh, for centuries. Yeah, yeah, of course, definitely. So thank you so much for talking about your research. Um, we're gonna go on to Matt to talk more about your out trip, outreach and mentoring that you've been doing a lot. Yeah, so like Alva said, you've been involved with mentoring through many different outlets, you know, Black and AI, and even at Cornell. Why is mentoring so important to you? And what's some common advice do, that you give to your mentees? Sure, so I would definitely say mentoring is important to me just because I basically been mentored all my life and especially like going into CS and um, AI in particular, I've been you know, very fortunate to have uh, mentors who've been able to you know, help me through the graduate application process and even just like, you know, my research um, and then also just, you know, trying to survive as a graduate student. So um, I feel like giving back is, you know, the best way for me to pay back, you know, all the people who have helped me um, get to where I am today. And so in terms of um, common advice I would give to mentees um, going through CS or AI, I think it's just 
forming communities is really the best way or, you know, forming support groups is the best way just to get through this, just because um, I noticed like even um, when I was an undergrad that a lot of the people that, you know, were doing well um, in their courses, they, you know, they had, you know, siblings or friends who actually like took these TS courses before them and were able to like help them out. And so, you know, being, you know, the first underrepresented students um, in, you know, CS or like um, AI, you may not necessarily like have these groups or, you know, like, you know, friends to call on or like siblings to call on um, who kind of know these things already. So doing your best to form communities will help you along the way. And also I would say, um, fortunately, um, and also like, unfortunately, it kind of took, you know, the events that, um, you know, have, that transpired last summer, um, you know, the killing of George Floyd, um, and also like Breonna Taylor for people to understand, you know, the importance of um, diversity, not only in just, you know, daily life, but also like, we've seen a lot of ac movements form in academia as well. And so I, I think that, um, you know, um, students who continue to come through these pipelines, especially underrepresented, underrepresented students, um, will be, you know, even more supportive. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, moving on to the next question. So you've not only been involved with mentoring in the US, but you've also been involved with CS mentoring and teaching like abroad with Code Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about your work there and why you think the US needs to expand a little bit, you know, outreach beyond the borders? Yeah, definitely. So I really love my experience with Code Africa and I believe that it was, I had a great time um, in Ghana. Uh, last January. And so I really wish I could do it again. And hopefully I will in the future. Talking about a bit of my work there. Um, so we went to Ghana um, in January of 2020. And so we were fortunate uh, to, to have connections, um, you know, in Ghana already. And so just to give you all some background on Code Afrique, it was started by some undergraduate students at Cornell. They since graduated, but they actually um, are from Ghana. They were both computer science majors and, you know, were able to get, you know, very um, I would say like good roles after graduation and they kind of wanted to pay this back. And so they connected with two professors um, in the CS department and who were able to get support from like different, I would say organizations, including um, the Associate, Association for Community Machinery at the ACM, uh, which was awesome. Um, and also other like, uh, I guess, big tech companies as well. So they started, um, I think their first workshops were in 2019 um, in Ghana, if I recall. And then in 2020, they did workshops in East Watini, East to be called Swaziland, um, and then also um, in Ghana. And so I was on the Ghana part. And so our program consisted, it was like a couple of days or so. And so what we did was that we created a, curricul a curriculum to teach, I would say, secondary school students um, introductory CS techniques. And so I would say like we spent the first couple of days teaching this curriculum um, to the students. And then on the last day, they would actually like use what they learned um, to participate in the hackathon. And then we would like give out prizes and stuff after that. And so I felt like it was super impactful for me just because, you know, coming, um, descending, you know, from um, West Africa and also just seeing, you know, how technology has a power um, to empower, you know, students and also provide them with a um, one-off, you know, first, um, I would say a better, um, way of living because you know people um, once you have like digital technology skills and even like you know coding skills um you're, you're able to access you know higher paying jobs and you know support your family a bit more um than you know like like other traditional industries you know on the continent and then again um, I think it's just important um and you know definitely going back to AI improving representation um, in AI because one uh, we see that you know a lot of these systems that you know um, are biased, you know, towards underrepresented people, they're not really developed by us. And so I think that's one way that the pipeline can be improved. And so this kind of goes into the next part about, um, you know, the U.S. needed to expand outreach initiatives. Um, in general, I think that it's hard to say, talk about like the U.S. as a whole, but I know that a lot of tech companies have been doing, I would say, decent jobs in improving their footprints um, in the global south and also like I would say in Africa specifically. And so I know that like IBM Research, they've had offices um, in Nairobi and uh, Johannesburg for years. And then also Google um, launched their first AI lab um, in Accra, um, as I would say two years ago or so. And so I think that is a great way that they've been able to kind of improve the representation of both, you know, technical, I would say technical talent on the continent and also just like AI talent, which will definitely have a great impact in the future. Yeah, that's very cool. You know, starting with um, the organization you're a part of, that's amazing, the work that your team has been doing. And just your valid points about the tech companies, you know, I'm glad you have a positive outlook on what they're doing. And it sounds like they're doing a really good job. 
So going on to the next section, I'm gonna pass it off to Alva to talk about future representation in AI. Yeah, so um, we, yeah, you talked a little bit about, you know, how representation of AI has improved. Um, but just to go a little bit more in depth, why do you believe that representation is important, especially in AI? And a little bit more adding on to what you've already said, but do you think representation has improved in the field over the past couple of years? So as we've seen so far, um, AI has, you know, a lot of potential um, to shape industries and is already, you know, changing um, industries, you know, throughout the world in a, a variety of ways. I think it's important for underrepresented people not only to be involved in the, you know, development of these kind of systems, but to also impact, you know, um, how these systems benefit people as well. Because already, um, as I like stated before, uh, we've seen that, you know, uh, there have been a lot of negative consequences um, that have resulted from, you know, the deployment and use um, of AI systems. But I believe that um, incorporating, you know, representation, diverse representation uh, will improve, you know, um, the impacts of this and also just make sure, ensure that, you know, communities are not negatively impacted um, by these respective technologies. And then also, in terms of representation, I would definitely say it's improved um, over the past few years, but I definitely think we have a long way to go. And it's not even just like just pointing out AI in particular, even the field of computer science. I don't know the numbers um, at the moment, but I know that, you know, underrepresented representation is super low. Also, like, you know, representation from, you know, Black students, researchers, and professionals is still very low, um, you know, at tech companies and also at, res uh, at you know, research universities or institutions. Um, fortunately, um, there have been a lot of initiatives, I would say, like, you know, by um, you know, back in AI, which is one of them who's, who's been doing a great job in improving like global re representation, just because they do uh, for, focus on a lot of, you know, people from the African continent and, and helping them get to graduate school. Um, and then also, um, I would say, I know like the NSF recently launched a program to help underrepresented students transition into PhD programs um, in computer science. And so um, I think that as long as people, you know, take a, um, an, intentional approach um, into improving, you know, representation in CS. And then I think that this will also have a follow-on effect in AI. Yeah, um, those are definitely great points. And I, I also agree with you that, you know, there's still some, some ways to go. What do you think the AI and tech community can do to improve more on having underrepresented people come more into the tech space? There's a, a lot of things first, but honestly, I think it begins um, by kind of evaluating um, their systems or like their systems in place that maybe have excluded, either intentionally or unintentionally excluded, you know, uh, people from uh, underrepresented backgrounds um, into, you know, different kinds of roles um, at their companies or even, you know, um, in their, you know, graduate school processes. Um, and so I think from there, then people can actually realize, you know, the harm that they have done and then can kind of get a picture on how to, uh, you know, on things that they can do to improve this. And so I think, you know, reflection is obviously the first step. I think the next step is honest, honestly partnering with organizations who have already been kind of involved um, in this. And so I, there's honestly, you know, a trend for people to kind of like take on I would say like diversity and equity or like inclusion and initiatives on their own without actually understanding, um, you know, the factors that kind of um, impact this and also, you know, like the different nuances that occur um, in the space. And so, you know, uh, seeing, you know, universities, for example, seeing universities partner with like back in AI to offer, you know, admissions waivers is something that I find to be helpful. Um, and then also just like, you know, Departments like mine at, uh, at Cornell who have actually established uh, diversity offices to kind of, and also like bringing in people who are you know, familiar with these issues um, are first step. And I know that, you know, diversity officer roles have been a thing at, you know, these, some tech companies for a while now. And so, you know, just doing their best to like, you know, um, like work with these institutions uh, will be great in improving our representation in the tech space. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Those are really, really great uh, suggestions. So if anyone's listening, you know, take them. <laughs> so what is your message to youth from these underrepresented groups interested in AI? And what advice could you possibly give them about getting involved if they don't know where to start? Sure. So definitely, um, I always encourage people to kind of reach out to role models um, that you see who are kind of doing the things that you want to do. Um, and so I'm always open to like, you know, telling people more about how they can get involved in AI or just even mentoring people. I've been fortunate to mentor a couple of people who've been able to like get into good graduate schools um, and also or just, um, you know, different like tech roles and stuff. And so um, I love doing that. 
So thank you so much for answering some really great questions that I'm sure a lot of youth in AI would love to hear and is very helpful to them. Um, so we're gonna move on to Matt to ask you just a couple of concluding questions. So we know you love to travel. It's one of your hobbies that you love to do before COVID. Um, do you have any cool stories or any cool places you've been to? Yeah, so I would say the most interesting place I've been to so far has definitely been Budapest. And so I actually lived there for a couple of months because I did study abroad there. Um, and so it was actually my first time like, traveling out the country alone and um, living in a, an apartment. And so yeah, it was a super cool experience um, that I had and I really treasure it um, to this day. Cool, cool. Yeah, then I guess another hobby related question, but are there any like personal projects or hobbies that you've been meaning to do, but just haven't found the time to do yet? I've been kind of dabbling in it already, um, but I'm super interested in, you know, using um, entrepreneurship to improve I guess like livelihoods for people that are um, either on the African continent or interested in like returning back to the African continent. And so uh, fortunately like Cornell has a very strong entrepreneurial ecosystem here. And so I've been able to like take courses and also like do um, different programs. And so um, my long-term goal is to definitely be involved in the entrepreneurial space and also like in venture capital of some sort. So um, that's something I really, uh, I would love to, you know open up a firm one day somewhere on the continent and, you know, just help uh, help founders grow and also just like support them with funding so yeah yeah that's, a, that's an amazing project i love that thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of you belong in ai this episode was made possible by ucla acm ai outreach again my name is matt ruiz and i was co-hosted today with ava osmani and our guest was chanasa okoro a third year phd student at cornell university this episode was edited by Kai Toda and Jason Jewick, and the music is by Kevin McCord, and it is called Cherry Monday. You belong in AI.